Well, I'm glad to be here again today. It seems like that these Pappas conferences grow just a little bit each time we meet. I'm not talking about individuals. I'm talking about numerically. And uh, it's just so good to be down here in Brother Thurman's location again and fellowship with each one of you. Well, the uh, assignment that we received is a fine one. I, I'm not sure that the one who received it is uh, the one that should have given it to, but it's a fine assignment. No, verse 17, the first part is our text. Uh, actually, we're to withstand taking or to take the helmet of salvation. That part has been assigned to us, and I, I suppose that it's necessary before we look into a text to define a few words, and I thought we could take a moment to do that today. It might help us understand what it means to take the helmet of salvation. Uh, no building is any better than the foundation, incidentally, and we all know that, so no message is any better than the words that subscribe to it. We don't understand the words, there's no message, or the contingency of a message lay on the definition of words. I'm interested in that word helmet, and uh, actually it's not found very many times in the scriptures. Uh, we notice that uh, the word actually is the derivative of two original words, which simply means around the head. And I thought, well, what's that mean, around the head? Uh, does that mean a garment, that is a hat placed around? That may have to do with it. The word helmet certainly fits and covers the head. But uh, I suppose a simple definition could be just around the head. For the time being, I don't have to suffice until we can discover just what that has in mind. Now, I take a little bit of deference to uh, some of the brethren who feel that this is strictly a garment type of thing. I think you'll see this as we move along, right or wrong, that's what I take, and I hope that maybe I can convey something here today that will at least invigorate our thinking and cause us to maybe dig a little deeper. Well, the helmet of salvation, the only other location in our New Testament is found in 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, and I'm sure you're acquainted with that, but uh, in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 8, we're told that uh, this is, let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and foreign helmet, the hope of salvation. So we haven't moved out of the definition that still refers to salvation, at least some tense of salvation. And uh, this particular part of the panoply or the armor that we're to put on is certainly subscribed to the very top part of one's anatomy. And I think that has to do with the thing within the, the, the noggin rather than the outside. I think that it's a covering to protect the work or the machinery within. I'm just thinking out loud, but it seems to me instead of just being a garment placed on top, it has to do with the protection of the thing that's within the head. I'm taking the position that the head is not empty, that the head has something in it. And I'm taking the position that the head, the mind, is to be controlled with this 
part of salvation, the helmet of salvation. Now, if one wishes by comparison to look into the scant dozen locations, and I do this occasionally, found in the Septuagint, for example, in Jeremiah 26, 4, he says this, Stand ready in your helmet. <laughs> Stand ready in your helmet, advance the spears, and put on the breastplate. That's interesting. I also find reference made in Isaiah 59, verse 17. Well, now, we read also in this text, text the helmet of salvation. The word salvation here is uh, simply deliverance from danger. And now, whatever danger that may be, we're to put this on to be delivered from danger. Also notice in this text, in each one of these words, until you come down to verse 18, is an aorist imperative, which tells us, and this is interesting, that these things are not to be done over and over again. You know, you've heard of the person who comes to the altar every Sunday night and it's off of his or her chest the things they've done during the week and get another start for another week. Well, as I understand the scriptures, as an example, Romans 12, 1 and 2, present our bodies is present them once for all. You don't present it every time you come to church. Now that idea is conveyed in this text whereby we are to take once for all the helmet of salvation. We're not talking about the present tense of salvation by which we are delivered from the penalty of sin. There are three tenses, as our brother pointed out. You're well aware of them. Surely couldn't be referring to the latter, because that's entirely God's work in which we shall be delivered from the presence of sin. But we are being delivered today by, from the power of sin, and we have something to do with that. Walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And that walking is up to me. That's something I've got to do. Now, I understand that I won't do, and I cannot do it, unless God is speaking to my heart and leading me by the Holy Spirit. I understand that. But still, the burden is upon number one to do that. So here, we're to take once for all the helmet of salvation. And then, of course, down in verse 18, praying always. That's just not once for all. We're to keep on praying, brethren. We're to keep on praying. And we're to keep on supplicating, keep on watching. This is a continuous process. But I was struck by the fact the aorist imperative in the main is used in our text from verse 10 through 17. Now let's come back to verse 10 because everything from verse 11 through 17 is a takeoff of the injunction, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord. This is how you do it. These are the areas you do it. I don't have a final answer on this, and I won't until we get to heaven, and then you won't need any more help. Neither will I, except as the Lord teaches us. But I sure need help today, but I do see in this something I haven't seen for all, all my Christian experience. I think I see in here that the strength that we need, as outlined from verses 11 through 17, is in the Lord. 
We all agree on that. I don't think we all agree as to whether these items, these parts of the ornament, are actual mechanical things that we get from the Lord, or these are the representations of the Lord in our life. And I may be wrong, and I've been wrong so many times, I don't mind being wrong again. But it seems to me, and I take deference to the message this morning, that this is not some object the Lord gives, but this is the instrumentality of the Lord in our lives. I'm trying to educate my sullen heart that it is the Lord that makes the difference. Be strong in the Lord. We've been educated by many people, and I think whether we admit it or not, it's true that certain things in the Word of God we have defined because of what they say. Now, an example of this would be this. We're to be filled with the Spirit. None of us here would agree that filling is what the Pentecostal movement says it is. No, we don't say that on a paper, but when it comes right down to the practice of it, we'd like to get more power as they understand it. I had a woman come to our fellowship just last week. <coughs> she wanted to <coughs> she wanted to talk about selling her possessions <coughs> because she wanted to go to Palestine in line with Acts 1-8, and she wanted to get power in her life. And she showed me a diamond ring, three diamonds, a carrot apiece, that, now I don't know much about diamonds, but she wanted to peddle that to me for $300. It wasn't hot, I don't believe. And she had her grandmother's watch, given her grandmother in 18, her great-grandmother, 1808, solid gold, algin. I don't know much about sentimentality, but it apparently was worth something. And she had no other idea in mind but to go to Palestine to fulfill Acts 1-8. Well, I said by way of talking, I said, what are you going to do when you get there? There's no temple. You can't go where the disciples went. And she thought, there isn't. What am I going to do? Well, I gave her some of Brother Sam's books again and uh, told her about the dispensations and I expected her back Sunday, but she wasn't there. I don't know what's going to happen now. Maybe she's already in Palestine. <laughs> but isn't that amazing? We don't, we don't want to admit that to certain fringe groups out here are correcting definitions, but we'd sure like that power somehow or other quietly. And here's another area. And I take the position here that these pieces of armament are precisely to be defined within the ranks of the Word of God. Thank you so much. And these are actually ministrations of the work of the Lord. Therefore, when you come down to the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, I cannot distinguish that from the person of the Lord because He is the Word. And I take deference to this idea that the word logos and rhema uh, may not be defined in other areas. I understand that the word logos is the spoken word. God has spoken to us by his son. He's the logos. 
and God speaks through his written word. There's a Logos. When you come to the word Rhema, you're talking a bit differently. You're talking about the revealed message in the word. I understand it, and I stand to be corrected. So therefore, uh, you have up here in verse, for example, verse 14. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. That's the message of the word. If God's word does not speak to me, there's no truth in it for me. And just the reading of a verse may not mean anything to us. Many people ramble on through the scriptures and never get anything out of it. But lo and behold, the Holy Spirit begins to speak to a heart here and there, and truth sinks in. I've heard Brother Wynn say so often, let the truth sink in. That's the revealed word of God. And that's within the Logos. And if the Lord Jesus Christ is not speaking to anybody, that means we're not really hearing what God has to say. So I would say that that would be the answer to this problem of the Logos and the Rhema. To take the helmet of salvation which, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Well now, I want to also point out Ephesians 1 through 3 deals with the wealth of every believer, and Ephesians 4 through 6 deals with the walk. The walk will be contingent on how much we appreciate the wealth. We've often had trouble defining faith in our fellowship. I think you probably do. And we don't like to admit that we have to drum up our faith, but Sometimes we admit in our own heart our faith is kind of small. Why is it small? Because we don't have the appreciation of the Lord as we perhaps could. If we understand the wealth of the Lord's work in our hearts, we're going to have a greater display of faith. It isn't my faith. Faith cannot be placed in anything any greater than the thing displayed. In other words, that thing upon which we want to fasten faith must reveal itself to us in order to, for us to get faith. And I've used a very homely illustration, and I think I shall do it again, very homely, but very effective. Let's suppose, for example, that I have in my briefcase an electric mousetrap. You all laugh, at least you ought to. They have never been such a thing before. And you say, well, it couldn't possibly work. But I say it will work. I have a mechanical mouse here, has the dimensions and everything of a mouse, and I've got to place this thing in a prescribed area, and I'm going to prove that within three feet of that mouse trap, it lurches out and grabs him, and any ordinary mouse would be dead. You say, I don't believe a word of it. But I do that. I demonstrate it. I plug the thing in, lay it down, and I put a circumference around there to disallow the mouse to go out, and as soon as it comes within three feet of that mouth that it lurches out and grabs it, that would be a dead mouth. Now you not only have been proven to yourself that it will work, but you're asking for the franchise. <laughs> you want to be the franchise dealer of that. Now why? Because you saw the demonstration of it. Why do you think that the disciples were told that they should watch the miracle? The first one that was performed, performed by our Lord produced faith in the disciples. 
this beginning of miracles that Jesus in Cana of Galilee and he manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed in him. And you are not going to have any more faith in anything than you think that thing will produce. That has to prove to you its veracity. It has to prove to you its likability or whatever before you will believe it. Christ in his miracles sought to do that before Israel. Some believed him, some did not believe him. And if we think today we don't have much faith, it's because we don't have a very good perspective of the finished work of Christ. That's what it amounts to, doesn't it? So you have the walk of the believer contingent upon the wealth. Remove Ephesians 1 through 3 and leave the rest dangled by itself. It would be quite meaningless. It needs a foundation on which to rest. Then I want you to also notice that when we come to this prayer of Paul, and I think this is a prayer of his, we have, therefore, it built on three strong contingencies. Notice Ephesians 3, verse 16, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. Now, that's a prayer of Paul. That's one of his prayers. And you'll notice in verse 17 you have another prayer, that Christ may dwell in your heart by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love. Notice verse 19, another part of his prayer, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God, now, what is this fullness of God? Well, just a word about this might indicate the direction that Paul would go. I am certain today that Satan will not let the wealth of Christ nor the walk of the believer go uncontested. I believe he'll contest the walk of every true believer at every turn. And he'll contest the basis on which that is built, which is the wealth we have in Christ Jesus. And Satan perhaps better knows than we, I'm sure he does, that the fullness of God is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. We remember he is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He's the fullness of God. We can look up some verses, Colossians, the first chapter in verse 19. Here we read in Colossians 1, verse 19, For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And we read about that in Colossians 2, 9, in which it is said, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. Ephesians 3, verse 20, just to pick some at random. Ephesians 3, verse 20, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundant of all that we ask or think according to that power which worketh in us. Now that power is not just something God gives, but it is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I'd like to take this in Ephesians 6 as a person that our strength is in the Lord. When the Holy Spirit manifested himself on the day of Pentecost, as I understand the text, he gave gifts unto men. Now we have to figure out whether the Holy Spirit himself was the gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit, or whether the Holy Spirit gave a gift out of himself, or he gave a gift apart from himself. Now think about that for a moment. I'm sure when you read the text and understand somewhat of the original language, you're going to find out that he did not give himself as the gift, but he gave a gift out of himself. Here you have a pitcher of water, and you have some instrumentality pouring the water. Is the gift the water, is the gift the Holy Spirit, or is the gift the person who pours it? Well, obviously the gift is the vehicle within this glass, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the glass in this instrument, and he pours out of himself gifts unto men, gifts of healing, gifts of miracles, gifts of this, gifts of that. So the water in this case would be the, uh, the illustration of the gift. Genitive used there indicates that he gave a gift unto those men. So when you come to this area, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord. Our strength is in Christ. And he wishes to show us that our entire need and hope and blessing is built upon the premise of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think there's too much of our lives absorbed with what he may give rather than the person who gives it. And our whole economy, right from the top of our government to the bottom, seems to be built on the premise today of getting what we can extract from somebody else. We're trying to extract something from God. Every time we pray, we may falsely have the intention of trying to extract something from him. Get what I can and can all I get. We're selfishly inclined. How much do we do because of who he is? Lord, that I may glorify thee, whether by life or by death. That's why the Apostle Paul could say in Acts 20, 24, but none of these things move me, and so forth, in the book of the Acts, where he subscribed to the fact that he was willing to lay his life down. There was nothing left of a serious nature, selfish motive in his life. Lord, I just want your will. And that's precisely what I want at any cost. you got to fight for it. But Ephesians 6.10 lays the groundwork for what this helmet of salvation is, and it's one way of being strong in the Lord. All right? There's no better way to retain the sanity and sobriety in the closing days of God's grace than to let the peace of God rule our hearts. And who is the peace of God? It's a person. It's not a commodity. Someone said, I have great peace in my heart tonight. Now that may rest upon the fact that they had just learned that their income tax check came back. We kind of smiled, but that may be, be, may be it. Many people have a false serenity about them. And maybe somebody died. 
and the relatives are going to leave you a hunk of money. And so they come to test one time, I have a great peace in my soul tonight. And I can see where they have a piece of money in their heart. Or someone says, well, God has been good to me, and, and uh, I know everything's going to work out just fine. How do you know that? Well, there's just something about today that told me that. Well, where does it come from? God says, let the peace of God rule in your heart, and He is our peace. The scriptures declare. He is a person. It's not a commodity. I'm taking the position right or wrong that these pieces of armament are to be identified as the word of God in the various elements, and it's closely united with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ who guarantees the veracity of this book. He is the author of this book. And if he hasn't given this book verbatim, then I have problems today. If this book is not inspired, and if this book is not infallible, if this book is not God's word from beginning to end, then he has not rightly expressed himself. But God has expressed himself. He spoke in time past by this method and that method. But he hath in these last days, the writer to Hebrews says, spoken to us in his son. I tell the people of Madison, I want you to have the same impression, and I want this impression. Lord, I want you to speak to my heart. I know it's not going to come here. He did one day in thunderings and lightnings and through the apostles and through this method and that method. This is the only method God speaks to us today. And this written word cannot be misconstrued to be opposite the living word. This is the living word in print. When I read God's word, it is God speaking. My text this morning, the picture says, Awake thou that sleepest and arise from the dead. And boy, I tell you, some people come alive. Because they don't want that text. Because they think that Christianity should give you some sort of an ether and kind of lull you to sleep and you make it peaceful until the Lord ushers you home. There's nothing more to be done. But that's not the case. And you stick in the sword of the God's Word and it does one of two things. It quickens those who hear the message or it aggravates those who don't want it. It sees the Word of God that does the quickening. And we need today the peace of God, which is a person, beloved. Let the peace of God rule in your heart. That's not something he gives. That's the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not going to say in my text that uh, the word helmet here should be capitalized. But I don't believe you can take the helmet of salvation, which is that mind of Christ, and separate that from, for example, the preparation of the gospel of peace being in our shod feet or the shield of faith. I take these as all actively used because they are representative parts of the ministry of the Lord in our hearts. Anybody who is taking the helmet of salvation is going to have the shield of faith about that if you're really doing it from the heart. Because 
faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And no man can believe God's word and take him at his word dispensationally, rightly, but what it will produce faith in the heart. It just won't work that way. You cannot have one apart from the other. I think these are so intricately tied in together that when the whole armor of God is appropriated, it'll all work together. And we are to have that circumference of salvation about us, the air of salvation. I said to Brother Wynn a few minutes ago, there's nothing but what will be corrected when the Lord Jesus Christ raptures us home. My, that will solve a lot of problems. Have you ever thought we're going to pay your debts after you go? Don't look to me. <laughs> I'm going to be with you. Maybe not with the best, but we're going to be caught together. And I think we ought to get some things straightened around if we expect the Lord Jesus Christ to come right away. But to me, I want to take this as a person. Now, it may not be right, but in a very real manner, he is our peace this afternoon. He is our peace who hath broken down the middle wall of partition. It's a person. And we find in Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 16, that we're speaking about a person. Second Timothy 3, Second uh, Thessalonians 3, verse 16. We read, Now the Lord of peace. There's no peace apart from the Lord. And that's not something he gives us something intangible. He deposits a little bit here, a little bit here, and as he steps back to watch us, we've got the mistaken idea that I think that if we have peace, it isn't, it's something the Lord gives, but it isn't the Lord himself. I've often thought of this. Peace is not the absence of danger, but the presence of the Lord. You can have peace wherever you are under any condition if the Lord is there, if he's speaking to our hearts. And then, we who adorn the upper part of our anatomy with the Lord are going to have that helmet of salvation the way he planned. Let the peace of God rule your heart, which is the peace of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the air, the mind, the thing that governs this body, is going to be of such a nature that we'll be able to walk in the per perspective the Lord Jesus Christ walks. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. That's the air of salvation, A-I-R. He wants us to have that hell of salvation so that our, our minds are controlled. I think the word shook up is a scriptural word that ye be not shaken in mind, see? And we're not to be shaken in mind. The trend today is to let everything that comes along upset us. Well, we need to make a stand, we need to make a stand. We need to be definite about it. But why become perturbed over anything except those things that are going to divide our brethren? That is heresy. And I feel very strongly that the rapture of the church is definitely pre-tribulation. I make no bones about it. The 
once in a while a young man will come up and say, well, I think we're going to be raptured at the close of tribulation. And I say, where are you going to be raptured to the Lord here on the earth? Where are you going to go? You going to make a U-turn? Tell me, because I'm not prepared to. Then I said, you shouldn't be prepared to make such a statement if you don't think that you can answer it. And I have other things I say to that, those young men. But I find today that our problem is we're trying to understand God's word apart from a real heartfelt union with Christ. That's why water Romans 6, many people. They don't understand that blessed union. That's why we're having trouble with tongues and things because we don't see the union we have in Christ. One of your brothers said to me, why I understand in dispensation is the answer to all things. And he hasn't been saved too long. And I thought to myself, how wonderful. How wonderful. But they sense this. Believe me, it is. But I wonder if we might not get something further from God's word by understanding. I'm just throwing this out. We can tear it to pieces, whatever. But I'm wondering if God does not want to teach us more about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in Ephesians 6 than maybe we've been given him. I think so. Be strong in the Lord, in his person, in his finished work. In his present work of advocacy at the Father's right, in his coming, oh, let that take a hold of our mind. We're not going to be shaken in mind when the Lord is there. I think of the illustration when the disciples stood out on the deck of a ship, feverishly trying to catch a few carp, not to put it for greater fish, I understand, and they couldn't catch anything. And uh, they sensed in the morning, dusk, or dawn, I guess it is, out there yonder on the shore, a figure, beside a blazing fire. They peered, it seemed like I've seen that person before. I think he's going to tell us he's around the corner, someone says, that's how much they know about him. One says, hey, that's the Lord. I think we have to come to the conclusion in our lives day by day when troubles come, tests come, and we're put into a position where God would like to speak. It might be we're going to have to come to the place on occasion say, it is the Lord. It is the Lord. For what it may be worth to you, I throw that out. I think I'd like to see the Lord in this more than just pieces dangling around my frame. Is he the helmet of salvation? Is he the expectancy of our hearts? Is he that mind that we possess day by day? I think I'd like to see that more. Thank you.